Hey, this is Penny Fool, and I'm here to talk to you about um, some kink history. Uh, we are uh, going to, to start a new season, season two, and um, in this season we'll talk a little bit more about the history and what brought us here. Uh, so excited to dive more fully into that. Um, and most of what we'll be drawing on will be uh, the book Leatherfolk, which is an edited compilation of historical stories about what it has meant to be part of the community, um, starting in the 1940s in America, and then uh, moving forward to the present. So for this um, this particular episode, I'm going to talk about one essay that's part of this compilation, but this is, this is for me personally, my favorite um, work on King history, um, and I think has a lot of, a lot of different perspectives, not uh, a really good summation of all perspectives over that time period, but I think it's just like they're interesting in and of themselves. So we'll share more about that. Um, so so yeah, so let's get started. So um, this one, uh, this is an essay that we'll talk about quickly today. It's a short one by Eric Rofs, um, and this book was initially published in 1991. So I, I believe that that's when this is published as well. And um, Eric, uh, from this essay, we'll understand, was uh, a queer man uh, living in different um, queer and kinky communities uh, in a couple of different cities um, in, in the 90s, uh, and, and I guess in the 80s as well. So uh, that's kind of where we're starting out. And what I'll do is read some uh, of this particular essay, and then also talk about this and, and tie it back to um, some experiences that I have in my life. Cool. All right, so let's get started. Um, so this one starts out. It's a cold Saturday morning before Christmas in San Francisco. I dress warmly to stave off the unseasonably frigid weather. Leather jacket, gloves, a scarf, and my new boots. Shiny black dinners. A holiday gift I gave myself. I leave my apartment in the Castro to amble down the hill and breakfast at my usual haunt before beginning a day of shopping with buddies. As I approach the corner of 18th and Castro, freshly drawn graffiti, graffiti catches my eye. S&M no more, it proclaims. I think nothing and continue walking, and I spot several similar scrawls on the sidewalk, then on a phone booth, then a newspaper box. A flyer stares down at me from a bulletin board. Someone has taken a red marker, drawn a swastika, and written, no more Nazis, no more S&M, on the flyer. I continue walking, and as I approach the co-cafe, I spot a colleague coming toward me. We spend our work week directing separate local AIDS service groups. After exchanging greetings and brief conversation, my colleague appears uncomfortable, even distracted. His gaze keeps shooting down to my dinners. Finally, his discomfort is articulated. I had heard you were into leather, he says, and begins to giggle, but I didn't know you wore it to breakfast on a Saturday morning. He grinned lewdly. It must have been a wild night. I didn't respond. After quick goodbyes, I strolled into the cove, slid into my usual seat, and began anticipating today's breakfast. After placing my order, I found my mind tripping back to my experiences of the past ten minutes. Somehow my morning stroll seemed to capture precisely my experience as an organizer in the gay and lesbian community who is open about my participation in what is referred to as the leather scene. The graffiti, the swastika, the awkward comments, the lewd grin, make concrete the uneasy alliance and deep dis distrust between the mainstream community and the leather people in its midst. Okay, so this is like a really interesting uh, beginning to this chapter. Um, I thought that 
the reason, one of the reasons I really liked this essay when I was first um, coming out and, and coming into my own in the community is that for my personal history, I had started out uh, spending a lot of time with different vanilla queers. So that was the experience that I had had. And I encountered a lot of, uh, you know, openness to, to kink and kinky perspectives in, in that community. And I think that there's been a lot of growth there over time. Um, but I think there's also as well some, some still some disgust that we're taught, um, both as kinky people and non-kinky people, towards uh, towards leather and leather practices. Um, and so I think that that is, yeah, that's something that I saw reflected here historically to kind of carry us on to the present. Um, so to like give you some examples of how we might see this in the present day is, is for instance, you might have a, have these days a lot of people talking about how they're like freaky or kinky or whatever, which is great. Um, and good that people are feeling more open about that. Um, but also you might hear those same people be disgusted if you talk to them about some of the stuff that you do. So like one example of this is that many people who I've talked to about being someone who's into blood play and stuff like that have said this is weird and gross and been kind of like made shock faces and like, you know, kind of said this is, this sucks. Uh, so yeah, there's that. I don't know if you're, you're on Twitter too, but you'll see people you know, simultaneously you'll see people being like, oh my god, it's so great to be freaky and stuff. And then also there's a lot of people being like, no, we should kink shame this. This stuff sucks. Um, on stuff that to me is kind of like pretty regular. So it's an interesting mix and something that I like about this essay is that it talks about it, not just in the context of the broader broader society, but also in the context of the community. Um, because I, th I think that, that while the division between um, leather folk and people who aren't into leather is is you know decreasing over time, which is great. So it's it's more possible for people to be open. I think also it's it's definitely still a division that exists, and it's kind of like worth worth mentioning. So I think it's a, nice to see that historically supportive. Let's hear a little bit more from this chapter. Community groups confront kink. I've been involved with community organizations since 1976 in Boston. At that time, I was 21 and a fledging reporter at a gay and lesbian weekly under the tutelage of a bisexual woman who was among the first women to write candidly and positively about lesbian SM. Her example eased my coming out into the leather bars of Boston. Since then, I have been involved with key gay organizations in Boston, Los Angeles, and currently San Francisco. I began as a volunteer and now work as an employee. Throughout my career in the movement, I have experienced at times the ambivalence suspicion, and downright enmity directed at leather people. I've also watched hostile people become educated, and closeted kinky people come into their erotic identity. And I have received support from activists who believe our community's roots in the movement for sexual freedom are worth cherishing. All in all, it's been a mixed bag. When I first started accepting speaking gigs in leather and S&M, I feared the impact such identification might have on my future employment. At that time, I was a school teacher, but I didn't expect that news of my giving a talk about the joys of SM to the gay student group at Harvard would find its way to my school. However, I did wonder whether publicly identifying myself as a Leatherman would cause problems for me and my work in community organizations in the gay and lesbian community. Sure enough, it has. In the early 1980s, I was interviewed for a key position with a national organization, and there were individuals on the interview committee who knew my reputation, quote-unquote. A question about my involvement with leather never surfaced during the interview, but when it became clear that I was one of two finalists for the position, the rumors were surfaced. 
One board member asked his colleagues on the committee, do we really want someone with this reputation identified with our organization? I didn't get the job. There were reasons besides this phobia that kept me from getting the position. What disheartened me, however, was to hear that issues about my involvement with others were seen as appropriate points for discussion. This was an organization whose mission was to carry forth the work of gay liberation. It wasn't AT&T or the Democratic Party. The revelation about this discussion came from a closeted other person on the board, someone I didn't know, and not from my close associates and colleagues. This one is really, you know, really hits home because uh, for me personally, and like many other others, I'm not open about being part of the, the community. I'm, I'm closeted uh, in, in, in like public settings, like, you know, work, stuff like that. I do, you know, engage anonymously online a bunch and also like have a lot of in-person interactions with people who are part of the community but I don't you know go out there and say hey you know here's my real world name and I'm gonna just like openly share that I'm that I'm into this community with people who are you know who might be like less receptive to it um I've done like a little bit of that in the past with with some success um but mostly with people who you know, maybe kind of could choose to engage and might be more interested in the community, whether it's like blogging or, or stuff like that that I've done. So it's definitely something that, as I think about trying to like live the life that I want to live, uh, gives me pause, right? Where I'm like, oh, you know, what kind of negative re repercussions could there be? And I think that the point this guy is making as well, that it's not just about more broadly repercussions, but also particularly about the community. It's a really good point. Like even if I'm going to go, like, let's say work in a place that's really gay friendly, it's not necessarily, or even is gay, like, it's not necessarily the case that I'm going to feel comfortable, um, and that they're going to welcome me. So I kind of just have to keep that in mind. So I really appreciated this historical perspective because it ties it back. Okay. Let's look at one more part of this uh, chapter before we wrap this one up. On my first weekend as a Los Angeles resident, I wrestled with my desire to dress up and explore the leather bars I'd heard so much about. My photo has been splashed all over the local gay media. If I went out, would I be recognized? Was it appropriate for the head of this organization to be out in chaps and a harness? Oh, just like some background context, this guy became head of some organization after this. If I were spotted, would my job be in jeopardy? My high level of self-doubt and phobia astounded me today. Integrity won out and I put on the leather, slicked back my hair and headed out. I parked and found my way into the gauntlet, the premier leather bar in the area. I wasn't in the bar for 60 seconds before I ran directly into my predecessor, the former agency director. He looked me over from head to toe, smiled, and laughed. I suspected as much, he chuckled. He looked at the black hanky in my left pocket and added, I should have known they need to hire a leather top to do this job. Within 15 minutes, I ran into two men from the board who interviewed me. Their friendly greetings and casual attitude reassured me and allowed me to relax. In Los Angeles, it clearly was acceptable for someone like me to hold the job. So another interesting one. This this one, uh, I think, is also really tr like some great insights for today too. Where, for me, like I feel a lot of fear about it being open, but I think also there are more people who are part of the community and feel similarly to me than I would expect. And I've had experiences where, um, you know, I would expect to be more poorly received, but then it turns out that someone else is actually kind of coming at it from a similar perspective. So it's really hard to gauge because sometimes you'll put it in front of someone and they'll have a really negative experience and then sometimes not as not so much. Um, so it's great this guy was able to make some of those connections in their work, but also just kind of sad that, that you know, <laughs> no one could really be open about it. Um, 
and really you know, relatable in that respect. Also, sometimes people are still figuring their stuff out. So, like, because we have all these attitudes, like, they might at first seem hostile, um, but then over time become more interested. So this one, let's let's uh, finish this out with like his closing thoughts. Um, a friend creating community. A friend recently asked me why I join leather groups and attend the National Leather Association's Living in Leather Conference annually. He knows that I'm not generally a joiner, quote unquote, and prefer small focus interactions with individuals to large group socializing. My answer was simple. I participate because these organizations do the work of making the world safe for kinky people. They make it possible for me to survive a life in the gay and lesbian community. As an organizer of the 1979 March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, I sat and listened to a respected colleague demand through a bullhorn that marchers remove their handcuffs because of local regulations. I've had to listen to staff members question my common sense because I served as director of a one-day leather institute at a national lesbian and gay health conference while I was employed as director of an AIDS organization. I've witnessed community members debate whether it was acceptable for support groups of other people to rent meeting space. I'm aware that many people harshly judge me because of real or imagined predilections they project onto me. I hear that people joke about this part of my identity in public meetings and explain actions I take or positions I articulate as rooted in my leather sex desires. I wish I responded stoically and with detachment when these things come my way, but I don't. There's also a cute picture of him on this page, which I wish I could share on this podcast. When I see hateful graffiti, I feel hurt and anger. When gay men laugh at me or joke about me, I feel sad and disgusted. And when someone makes phobic statements about kinky people in my presence, I feel the same outrage I feel at racist, sexist, or anti-Semitic remarks. But I can't live in a house of rage. I've chosen not to settle in a village of sadness or put down roots in a country of anger. Instead, I detach and let those feelings go. I bring into my mind snapshots of desire that make it all worthwhile. The sound of a lover moaning in my ear, the smell of newly polished engineer boots, the feel of a man's wrists held tightly in my hands. To experience the love and desire and passion free from the shame makes it all worthwhile. Okay, so I think that that's a great message too. Um, for me as a recluse, a little bit, like these days, uh, it's a little bit hard to think about joining up and being part of um, different community groups and trying to make changes, uh, just like many others do and have in the past. But it's also true that, you know, there's, I, I definitely am in a position where I could make an impact in um, these places. Not everyone is, I guess, but, but I, maybe, but I feel like I am. Um, so I think it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, that he ends with kind of with that on that more positive note, like he feels like he can make a difference and thinks it's all worth it. And I, you know, kind of agree with that. Uh, it definitely does feel worth it too. when I think about kind of the positive experiences I've had. So interesting. Uh, anyway, that's the, yeah, that's the intro to this new season of the pod. We'll have more people on, um, talking about different parts of history, probably, uh, drawing on this particular collection a lot. Um, but also maybe some of that stuff too. Thanks.